Once there was an infant playing on the carpet in the living room. The little one picked up a quarter and stuck it in her mouth. When the mother saw it, she screamed. She, she went hysterical. She shouted into the other room to her husband, Quick, honey, call 911. Our daughter just swallowed a quarter. Her husband shouted back, Forget 911. Call the pastor. He can get money out of anybody. Well, in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, Pastor Paul intends to get money out of the Corinthians. You could call these two chapters a first century fundraising letter. You see, the believers in Judea, they had fallen on hard times. Famine had hit the entire region. Members in the church there in Jerusalem were hungry and hurting. And Paul saw this as their opportunity to bridge the gap between Gentile and Jewish Christians. Not only would this offering meet a physical need, but it would also serve two additional purposes. The Gentiles would be acknowledging their debt that they owed the Jews there in Jerusalem. After all, the church in Jerusalem was the first church, and it had led the way for others to follow. At the same time, though, the Jews would feel firsthand the love of the Gentiles through this offering, their love of the Lord as well, and it would help them accept the Gentiles as bona fide believers. This was a good plan to collect this offering. And Paul had already received a generous contribution from the Macedonians in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And now he uses their offering as an example to the Corinthians. He employs a little positive peer pressure. If they could give so cheerfully, the Corinthians can too. And so he begins in chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now notice, Paul doesn't call their offering a gift, but a grace. When you receive God's grace, you will want to give in return. Never give a gift to earn God's favor. doesn't work that way. God's gifts, God's blessings, His favor are always a free gift, a result of His grace. Our giving should always be a response, a response to that grace. That's why we need to give freely, with no strings attached. We need to give voluntarily from our hearts, and we always need to give with gratitude. It reminds me of the little boy who was given a dime to drop in the collection plate. Later in the service, when communion was served, he reached for the bread. That's when his mother whispered, Son, you can't take it yet. You're not old enough. The little boy looked at her and then he kind of shouted out, Why not? I already paid for it. If your offering is an attempt to buy God's favor or to purchase His forgiveness, then you do need to put it back in your wallet. Grace, remember, is God's unwrought, unsought, unbought love for you and me. You don't give to get. You give to say thanks. Giving to God and the grace of God always go hand in hand. Paul says in verse 2, In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. In other words, the Macedonians weren't rich Christians. They too had given in the midst of poverty in tough times when they had very little of their own. 
I love verse 3. He says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Notice they gave beyond their ability. In other words, their offering was a sacrifice. They dug deep to give to God and to help their brothers in Christ. You see, the size of your bank account may determine the amount of your gift, but it shouldn't affect the act of your giving. You see, giving is a principle. If God has given to us, then we should give in response to Him. Don't think, I can't afford to give. Hey, you can't afford not to give. This was the Macedonians' attitude. Rather than feel pressured to give, verse 4 tells us that they asked Paul if they could give. You know, it always blesses me when a new person comes to our church and says, you know, I've noticed that you guys don't pass the plate here at Calvary Chapel. Where can I give my offering? I always think that's a good sign when people have to ask to give. That's what the Macedonians were doing. They wanted to give. It could come from their heart. It was a grace they wanted to give to God. Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 7, But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, See that you abound in this grace also. I want you to take note of that. Don't just witness. Don't just teach. Don't just study the Bible. Don't just serve God. Don't just love others. Yes, those are parts of the Christian life. But you also need to realize that giving is likewise an important part of our Christian discipline. And Paul encourages us to give. Verse 10 indicates that the Corinthians had planned to give this offering a year earlier, but they lacked a good follow-through. And I have found that this is common when it comes to giving. It's easy to make big commitments until it's time to write the check. Paul says, As there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion. Do what God's laid on your heart to do. Did you hear about the clever country preacher? He was, he was an old country preacher, but he was a smart old goat. Just before he took the Sunday offering, he said to the congregation, Before we pass the plate today, I just want to ask the person who stole Brother Harvey's chickens not to give an offering this morning. The Lord don't want money from a chicken thief. And of course, needless to say, for the first time in months, Everybody in the church that morning chipped in. <laughs> there was 100% participation. No, wanted to, no one wanted to identify themselves as a chicken thief. Paul wants the Corinthians to do their part so that it doesn't become a burden on others. This is God's plan. Everybody should do their part. Everybody should chip in and do what they can so that it doesn't become a burden on any one or two or three or four people. Verses 13 and 14 tell us, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. In the latter part of chapter 8, Paul writes of the men who would accompany the offering to Jerusalem. Their involvement, understand, was a precaution. You see, if something happened en route with the offering, if a shipwreck or thieves stole the money, if something happened to the money, Paul didn't want the people to think that he himself had absconded with the funds. And this is why churches should have several people counting the offering. 
They should also have a system of checks and balances in their accounting procedures. Charles Hodge wrote of Paul, he said, It was not enough for the apostle to do right. He recognized the importance of appearing right. And I think that's good wisdom for us as well. Paul knew it was vital to protect his ministry's integrity, not only in the eyes of God, but also in the eyes of man. And so he had a group of people who were going to take this offering back to Jerusalem. In chapter 9, Paul wants to avoid an embarrassing situation. He has boasted in the Corinthians and in their generosity. After all, they had promised a lavish gift. It's going to be humiliating now for both them and him if he and the Macedonians get to Corinth to collect a non-existent offering. Paul is hoping that they'll get their act together before he arrives. He wants them to collect the offering, but he wants them to give with the right attitude. He says in verse 5, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as grudging obligation. Paul encourages the Corinthians in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Guys, your money is like a seed. Plant it in God's work, and it will reap a bountiful reward. You know, it's been said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. It's true. God allows us to invest in His kingdom. Give a little, and you'll get a little in return. Give a lot, and you'll be rewarded abundantly. You reap in proportion to what you sow. Paul says in verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. In other words, there's no law that governs our giving. You decide. You see, it's up to you. Do you want a little blessing or do you want a lavish blessing? Do you want to reap a little or do you want to reap a lot? It, that Answer that question will tell you how much you should sow, how much you should give. You reap what you sow. And he adds, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not just the amount. It's also the attitude that determines our return. You can give a lot, but give it from the wrong motive, and it'll nullify your reward. If you give reluctantly, begrudgingly, or if you give because you felt pressured or manipulated to give, or because you thought God needed your offering, you're better off just not giving. Just keep it. Put it back in your wallet. God wants you to give cheerfully and joyfully. This Greek word translated cheerful means hilarious. Literally, God loves a hilarious giver. Whenever you put your money in the offering box, just chuckle a little bit. Just laugh out loud. Just rejoice and praise the Lord for all that He's given you. Rather than give because we think we have to or we think God needs it, we should always give because we love Him. And we just get a kick out of investing in his kingdom and participating in his work. You know, pastors motivate their people to give in one of three ways. I found this to be the case over the years. Some pastors use the flint approach, others the sponge approach, but then there are a few who use the honeycomb approach. There's the flint approach. Pastors will strike the folks with appeals to duty. Oh, you ought to be giving. It's your responsibility. And the saints just grit their teeth and just do it. Other pastors, though, use the sponge approach. 
They squeeze the people. They use guilt and greed to pressure the people, to manipulate the people. Folks give, but they feel ripped off afterwards. But there are a few pastors who use the honeycomb approach. They just pollinate the hearts of the people with thoughts of God's love and grace and goodness until their hearts overflow with joy and gratitude and an inner sweetness is produced that just has to come out and the people respond in the most natural way. They just want to give back to God of all that He's given them. I want to be known as someone who uses the honeycomb approach. Verse 8 says that God is able to provide you an abundance for every good work. You know, when God finds a hilarious giver, don't be surprised if he continues to bless that person with an abundance. You see, if you're just a depository, if God gives to you and those gifts end with you, why would he want to give you any more? But if you're a distribution center, and God knows that when he gives to you, those gifts will flow to others, don't be surprised if God just keeps on giving and giving and giving to you. Paul ends this chapter by reminding the Corinthians that their giving not only meets a physical need, but it's also proof and a witness of God's work in their lives. The last verse in this chapter on giving reminds us that our gift pales in comparison to the greatest gift of all. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Always remember that our giving is simply a response to the greatest gift, Jesus Christ. The Corinthians had misjudged Paul. They had mistaken his meekness for weakness. You see, Paul could have been bold and authoritative. He could have used his clout and thrown around his apostolic weight. Instead, he approached them humbly. You see, true meekness is power on a leash. It's strength controlled by the Spirit. Paul took a spiritual rather than a fleshly approach to the battles that he faced. He says in verse 4, the weapons of our warfare, verse 4 of chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Paul understood that since we're in a spiritual battle, and we're fighting a spiritual foe. We need spiritual rather than worldly weapons. You see, the way of the world is manipulation. It's heavy-handedness. It's clout. It's intimidation. It's pressure. But God's way of influencing people is love and gentleness and patience and meekness. The victory we're after, you see, goes beyond just eliminating symptoms. It goes beyond just altering situations. It goes beyond enforcing our will on other people. God, you see, wants to change people's hearts. And that can't be done through worldly means. The only way that happens is through the Word of God. Through the Spirit of God. That's why our weapons, our weapons of love and prayer and truth, the blood and name of Jesus, the spiritual weapons, that's why they're so effective and that's why they're so needed. By utilizing a spiritual arsenal rather than a carnal one, that's how we can topple the work of Satan. That's how we can tear down strongholds of fear and deception. Verse 5 holds the key to victory for you and me. He says, casting down arguments... And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 
Notice the spiritual battle is fought in the theater of the mind. This battle we're fighting, it's fought in the arena of the mind. Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 5. He says, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. I love that. Fitting every loose thought. Imagine the scriptures as a lasso. The spirit as a sheepdog. God wants us to use them both to corral our stray thoughts and bring them into obedience. Conform them to Jesus Christ and conform them to the truth. Guys, our most lethal mistake is to allow our minds to wander aimlessly. Do you catch your mind just sort of wandering? Don't let that happen. That's a mistake. It's been said, open lots and open minds collect trash. It's true. Not setting your mind on Jesus is letting your mind be pulled and drawn toward the negative and the nasty. Think about it. We don't let a toddler wander through the neighborhood. We don't let our dog wander through the grocery store. We don't send out our kids to wander across the expressway. Why do we let our minds wander around aimlessly and without direction? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 tells us, Gird up the loins of your mind. That's a fancy way of saying keep your mind on a leash. Gather up those stray thoughts. Keep your mind from wandering. Fixate them on the truth that's in Jesus Christ. This is the key to victory. And for Paul, that applied to what the Corinthians also thought about him. You see, they had jumped to conclusions based on his appearance. Paul says in verse 7, he says, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? You see, to them, Paul didn't look like an apostle. There was a third century novel. It was known as the Acts of Paul and Hecla. And in it, it gave a description of the apostle Paul. Now, we don't know if it's true or not, but it's interesting. The description goes, He was small in size with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, ball-headed, bow-legged. That's quite a sight. There's another tradition that says he spoke with a lisp. Paul certainly wasn't handsome. He wasn't dynamic. He wasn't even a convincing orator. He didn't even have a halo around his head. Nor did he glow in the dark at night. How could he be an apostle? They even said that Paul's bark was worse than his bite. Verse 10, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. In other words, his pen might be powerful, but his presence is pathetic. Paul, though, assures them in verse 11 that he will be as bold in person as he has been in print if they don't shape up. In verse 12, Paul refuses to compare himself with other believers. You know, it's tragic that we as Christians do this all the time. We make these comparisons. Pastors compare themselves to other pastors. Churches compare themselves to other churches. Guys, what matters is not how we stack up to someone else. It's how we measure up to the will of God. Paul sums it up in verses 17 and 18. He says, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord For not he who commends himself is approved, 
but whom the Lord commands. In chapter 11, Paul expresses his concern for these gullible Corinthians. He calls the church the virgin bride of Christ, but he compares her to Eve in the Garden of Eden, who was tricked by the devil. You see, Paul worries that these Corinthians, like Eve, are vulnerable to to deception, who are vulnerable to believing the lies of the enemy. He says in verse 4, For he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He was worried for these Corinthians, that they might buy into the wrong gospel. Paul defends himself directly in verse 5. He says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now you see, Paul's critics there in Corinth, they use the title, the most eminent apostle. That's sort of the title that they use for themselves. Literally, super apostles. That's what they call themselves. Paul says, though, that they have nothing on him. Verse 6. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. In other words, I might not be exciting to listen to, but I know what I'm talking about. Always remember the test of a preacher is not that his congregation goes away saying, Wow, what a lovely sermon, but, wow, I'm going to obey and follow Jesus. That's the test. Paul's critics, you see, had questioned his integrity. But look at his actions. While in Corinth, Paul worked a job. He made tents and he supported himself. And in verse 7, he tells us why. So he could deliver the gospel to the Corinthians free of charge. What a noble ambition. Verse 8 says that he had supported himself by funds that he had received from other churches, especially the Macedonians. In other words, he took from the other churches funds that they had given you know, to him and he used them to fund his ministry there in Corinth. He says in verse 9, In everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. You see, he was diligent to provide for himself. He took nothing from the Corinthians because he didn't want his enemies there in Corinth to have a reason to question his motives. Paul's critics called themselves super apostles. In reality, though, they were pseudo apostles. They were false prophets. Paul says in verses 14 and 15, he says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. In other words, beware. Don't you get suckered in by Satan. You know, people fail to recognize Satan today. Because they expect to see him in red leotards with horns and a pitchfork and a long tail. But you see, Satan and his agents, they appear in much more appealing packages than that. Satan uses the beautiful blonde in the string bikini, the clean-cut Mormon missionary talking about family values, the polished preacher in a three-piece suit, the so-called buddy who offers you pills to cure your ills, Don't buy it. Satan and his operatives can come across slick and sophisticated, polished and pleasing to the eye, but they are hell-bent on your destruction. 
Beware. Even Satan himself appears as an angel of light. Paul is angry with these false apostles. But he's angrier still at the Corinthians for putting up with them. Notice in verse 19 he says, For you put up with fools gladly. Reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 31. When the prophet moaned, he said, The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power. And notice this, And my people love to have it so. That's tragic. You know, I have concluded that carnal people gravitate toward carnal leaders. There are some people who like the flashy, forceful, manipulative preacher because deep down inside, they want to emulate him. A humble, sacrificial servant exposes their evil, lays bare their motive. They gravitate toward the carnal preacher because they want to live a carnal life. In verse 16... Paul asks for some leeway. He's going to do what he never likes to do. He's going to boast a little, he says. In verse 18, he says, Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. Now, other apostles were boasting of their great achievements and great successes. So why not Paul? But notice, rather than boasting in his successes, Paul boasts in his sufferings. You see, the proof that Paul offers for the legitimacy of his ministry are not the miles that he's traveled, not the souls that he's saved, not the crowds that he's addressed, not the money he's raised, not the churches he's started. No, Paul boasts in the things that he suffered. You see, his premise is this. If he wasn't sincere, why would he have endured so many trials? And if he hadn't been effective for God's kingdom, why would the enemy have tried so hard to stop him? This is why Paul takes pride in his infirmities and his weaknesses. You see, when it gets right down to it, it'll be our scars, not our stars, that prove our spiritual mettle. Philip Pillsbury was the son of the founder of the Pillsbury Dough Company. He was seen by company outsiders as a spoiled rich kid. But that wasn't the view that his employees had of him. They loved and respected their boss. They looked up to Philip. He was one of their own because the Pillsbury workers had seen Philip's fingers. Their young boss was missing three fingertips. That was the mark, you see, of a professional miller. His missing fingers proved that he had worked in the trenches, that he had been there and had his... Fingertips sawed off in the work, in the plant there that, where they had done the work. His missing fingertips proved that though Philip might have been a multimillionaire, in his heart, he was a miller just like them. And in the last chapters of Second Corinthians here, Paul shows off his missing fingertips. He shows off the things that he suffered. He shows to the Corinthians that he's sincere in his love for them and love for the Lord. Let me read verses 23 through 30. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils 
of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak. Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. You see, Paul's boastings conclude in verses 32 and 33. What great achievement does he leave lingering in our minds? What great accomplishment did he produce? Well, he tells us about how he had to make a sneaky and a humiliating exit from the city of Damascus. He was Lord over a wall in a basket, he says. And that sort of summed it up for Paul. Based on outward, numerical, tangible criteria, you could say that his ministry was a real letdown. The false prophets boasted of their exceptional talent, their great knowledge. Paul was just the opposite. He was quick to admit that he was an ordinary guy through whom God had done an extraordinary work. It was all grace. Hey, who would you rather follow? A guy full of himself or a guy aware of his own weakness but trusting in the grace of God? In chapter 12, Paul continues to indulge in his little boasting, but this time he moves from incisions to visions, from tribulation to revelation. In 2 Corinthians 11, he was beat up for the Lord. Now in chapter 12, he's picked up by the Lord. Paul begins in verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ. Notice Paul is so uncomfortable with this boasting that he speaks in the third person. Who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Paul wasn't even sure if God had used him for a little rapture practice literally popped him up to heaven, or whether it was just a vision. He wasn't quite sure. But he says, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. This Greek word translated caught up is the same word that's elsewhere translated rapture. So it could be that he literally was transported to heaven. Verse 4 says that he was caught up into paradise. The word paradise is a Persian word for a walled garden. Don't think of heaven as some sterile, bland, stark white hospital corridor. Don't think of heaven as a pit group of cumulus clouds. Think of heaven as a beautiful garden. There's nothing bland in heaven. There's nothing boring about heaven. It's a lush oriental oasis. It's a garden full of color and vegetation and fruit and flowers. It is going to be such a beautiful place when we get to heaven. In paradise, Paul says that he heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now notice, Paul didn't return to earth and then immediately jump on the talk show circuit. He didn't make an appearance on the 700 Club or TBN. He didn't write a book or release a video. He didn't try to profit at all from his heavenly experience. Whatever Paul heard, he said it was too sacred. 
It was too holy for human ears. It would be unlawful for him to repeat it. You know, that makes me a little suspicious of all the televangelists who come on week after week and brag about their visions and their weekly transports to heaven. You see, when you really see the glory of God, it shuts you up. It hushes you and humbles you. It makes you speechless. It takes your breath away. You sit there in silence rather than start blabbing your mouth. But with this spectacular vision, God gave to Paul a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. The Greek word translated thorn means a sharp stake used for impaling or for torture. Other translations render it a stabbing pain, a dagger in the flesh, a terrible suffering. All kinds of theories have been advanced as to just what was Paul's thorn in the flesh. Commentators say it was an, some commentators suggested it was an infectious eye disease. Perhaps it was a reoccurring bout with malaria. Maybe it was migraine headaches. Perhaps it was an abrasive personality. Maybe he traveled with his wife. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) I was just kidding, honey. But this is for sure, whatever it was, the pain refused to go away. Paul calls it a messenger of Satan to buffet me or to beat me continually. God allowed this thorn in the flesh to be a constant pain, a constant burden, constantly beating up on Paul in order to keep him humble. You know, I think that the exact identity of this thorn remains a mystery. God is intentionally silent about the thorn's identity because he wants us to know that this thorn could be anything. It could even be the reoccurring pain that you experience. You see, understand, though the identity of the thorn is a mystery, its purpose is quite clear. For Paul says in verse 7, It was given to him, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. The thorn kept him humble. Paul says in verse 8, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Paul wanted it to go away. He prayed three times for the Lord to take this thorn away. But God said no. You realize that God answers prayers in different ways. Sometimes he says yes. Oh, and we like that, don't we? Sometimes he says wait. I think that's the hardest answer to a prayer sometimes is to wait. But there are times when God says no. And and you understand that if you believe in the love of God, you should be just as thankful for a no as for a yes. If you really believe that God has your best interest at heart. In fact, God had a purpose for Paul's thorn. Verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is is made perfect in weakness. You see, Paul's thorn kept driving him back to God. Through his thorn, Paul learned that God's grace was sufficient for any difficulty that his face. 
that grace not only forgives, but it sustains and it empowers. He learned that through this thorn. Paul's weakness became an opportunity for God's strength. His hurt was the door, the open door for God's healing. His pain was a stepping stone to receive God's comfort. His futility was the launching pad for God's purpose in his life. His lack was the purchase order for God's supply. Roy Campanella was a standout catcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers before he lost his arms and legs in an accident. At first, Roy struggled with his handicap until one day he stopped to read the plaque on the wall outside the East River Hospital. And these are the words he read. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. I am most richly blessed. This could have been written by the Apostle Paul. He didn't get what he had asked for. He got something better. And that's why he became thankful for this thorn in the flesh. In verse 9 he says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Notice he embraces his weakness in verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. Weakness became Paul's ally. For his inadequacies became God's opportunities. His weakness reminded him of his need for God. It actually caused him to go to God. And in drawing upon God's strength, Paul became stronger when he was weakest. In verse 11, Paul expresses his embarrassment for talking so much about himself But he's upset with these Corinthians. Their betrayal has forced him to defend himself, something he's never liked to do. Paul's apostleship should have never been questioned. In verse 12, he reminds the Corinthians of the miracles that he had worked among them. In verse 13, he brings up the fact that he supported himself to minister to them. These were marks of a true apostle. He even gets sarcastic in verse 13. He says, For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me for this wrong. (laughs) In other words, forgive me for trying to save you a few bucks. Paul's feelings toward the Corinthians were a mixture of love and frustration. He says in chapter 12, verse 15, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's some sacrificial love, isn't it? Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. That's some heartbreaking frustration. Isn't it interesting how the people you love the most are the people that frustrate you the most? Paul ends the chapter by pointing out that Titus has followed in his footsteps. Neither Paul nor any of his partners had taken advantage of the Corinthians. Paul will make a third trip to Corinth, and he hopes it will be without incident. 
He wants to find the believers there with a repentant heart. Paul doesn't want a bad scene when he gets to Corinth. The Corinthians' judgment of Paul was based on appearance. In chapter 13, verse 4, Paul reminds them that a crucified Christ also appeared weak. And yet today, that same Christ lives by the power of God. Likewise, Paul was weak, but in Christ, he was powerful. Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 5 of chapter 13, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? In other words, take inventory to see if you are still walking in the faith. It is possible to be disqualified as a Christian through unbelief. I once read of a fellow who went to college. In fact, he was a big man on campus. And afterwards, there was a need for his transcripts. But you see, when they sent for the transcripts, the college had no record of any of his grades. People remembered him, but they found out that he had never really been enrolled. And when contacted the school officials, they looked and they, they discovered that the, that the man, you know, he'd been there, everybody remembered him, but, but there was no record. And when they contacted the man about it, he admitted that he had gone to the college, but he had audited all his classes. He had actually taken the money that his parents had sent and spent it on other things and had never actually enrolled in the college. You know, I think this happens in the church. People come to class, but they haven't really enrolled. They audit Christianity rather than make the commitment count the cost, pledge their heart to Jesus Christ. Paul tells us we need to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith, whether we've truly made a commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We need to examine ourselves to see if we're still walking in the faith or have we abandoned our faith and pursued other things. You know, it's been calculated that by the time you finish college, you will have taken... 2,600 quizzes and tests and exams. 2,600 by the time you graduate from college. But I want to say to you tonight, the most important test, the real final, is the examination of your heart. Search your own heart tonight. Do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit? Does the Spirit live in you? Do you love your brother? Do you want to do what's right? Are you living an overcoming life? These are all things that the Bible says will be true of a Christian. Examine yourself. Prove yourself. See if Christ truly dwells in you. Such a stern letter ends on a gentle note. Verse 11. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul closes 2 Corinthians with a blessing from all three members of the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. The Savior's grace, the Father's love, the Spirit's presence. 
May we live every minute of every day in all three. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for this wonderful letter. Some stern words to us, some searching words, but Lord, we need it. We ask you, Lord, to continue to go through us, clean us out. Make us more like you, Lord, as we continue to go through your word. Lord, we pray you'll bless our upcoming Sundays and some of the special activities we have planned. Lord, do a great work in our hearts over these next few weeks. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.